We're here with Ricky Simmons, the voice of Gur from Invader Zim. Hello, how you doing? You're listening to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Woo! They steal from you and leave you in an alley, and then you wake up a few days later and you're covered in bees. But it's all good. We will begin in mass invasion. We will tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. Don't think you get me too easily. It is now time for us to put Earth under our rule. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess that you've been guilty of witchcraft. Can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. From a hot, slimy sulfur boil deep in the underground video facilities of Area 51. Welcome to TalkCast 353, this edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Tonight it's Gamer Night, which means I'm lost, and I am the Dome. Joining the TalkCast tonight, the rest of the gang, from the Peabody Time Tunnel, our technical radical, button-pushing, keyboard-clacking, sonic screwdrivering, violent virtuoso, tonight, playing Guild Wars, it's Kriana. Kicking ass, taking names. I'd say I was reading, but I'm done already. Yeah, I know. From the stacks of her quiet place in the Dank Dungeons Manuscript Conservancy, with a degree from the College of Juvenile Cyborg University, friends of the lycanthropic underprivileged, it's Zombrarian. Today was a good day. There you go. A guy walks into the Carvel ice cream drive-in and says, I would like a Zen undersea surprise. The attendant yells to the back room, one fudgy the whale with everything. And at that point, you know, it's either Tom Carvel or our very own futurist and gamer, the guy who likes really shiny stuff awake by Java. I'm wiring. What are you wiring? So, I know Here comes a long story. No, wait, 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 Java, I've got this, I've got this. It's a robot. It's not, it's not. Um, I am a man. Um, and sometimes I do things that men do among them are and masturbate he's standing uh, up i'm no right, right right now i am wiring a a four gang a four outlet socket or box for my garage work lights so not you're not that doing things that men do you're doing things that electricians do i didn't say that it was exclusively things that men you do you kind of did no, I said it was things that men do. Yeah, but not, not exclusive. That. I didn't say exclusive. <laughs> but we're going to have, we're gonna have a, a feminist talk after the show, Java. Oh, wonderful. You're going <laughs> to enjoy it a lot. <laughs> okay. I'm, yeah, whatever. <laughs> About a week and a half ago, uh, Cameron... Or as we fondly refer to him here as Booking Monkey, uh, called me up and said, "I met these guys, and they have this Kickstarter, and the Kickstarter is this book that's very difficult to explain. But 
And this is his quote. The art is amazing, and the entries read like a Druid National Geographic article. <laughs> and joining us tonight are the artists of Atlas Animalia, uh, Sarah Dallinger, and the president and creator of Metal Weave Games, Andreas Walters. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank hey. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes. And, like, I got both names right right off the bat without anybody having to laugh at me. So I'm, I'm doing pretty good here. Can we laugh at you uh, now? <laughs> oh. um, so right now your Kickstarter is at about 85%. You've got a couple of weeks left to go. This is not, Andreas, your first Kickstarter. I think it's your seventh or eighth? It's officially my seventh, although it'll say eight because I canceled one. But, yeah, couple did seven. <laughs> So you've been doing the Kickstarter thing for a while. Uh, talk to us a little bit about Metal Weave Games, where it began, and, and how you uh, built it, basically, because it's your build. Yeah, so actually, I under I undergone an evolution. And so it started actually with Monica Games, surprisingly. Um, when they created the like uh, sci-fi fantasy Numenera Kickstarter, um, I was on that train, and or I got into the end of that train. And then when they released the content, I was kind of all up into learning a new system. That was like the first system since third edition that I really you know cared about. Um, I mean, fourth edition was okay, but and when I got into that, they released the um, licensing, which they're their fan use license, which essentially was fifty bucks, and you can publish something on Drive Through RPG, essentially. Um, and so I started doing, well, before that happened, I started learning PDF, learning InDesign is doing PDF layouts. Like, oh, we're making fan-made content. We're just PDFing it and putting it out to the community. And it was very well received. And I started doing it for other people. And when they started doing the fan use license, I jumped right on that and became one of the, I guess, top two fan publishers. Me and Ryan Chaddock were kind of like sort of friendly competing in terms of just like, publishing after publishing stuff um it took me about i would say seven months to write my first book um ninth world assassins and from there i kind of started doing what kind of has been present in all of my products which is a large emphasis in options and uh kind of a focus in environmental so it was always not like uh, new classes it was always here are new features or new ways to run your game or alternative ways in making your game more interesting in this specific aspect. Um, I went forward and did a couple environmental-related books, more like weird environmental stuff to pulling on my environmental background. And from there, I kickstarted my first product, which was non-player cards, which was kind of the start of it all. It was, I'm looking back at it, wow, I'm amazed it funded. Um, and it was 15000 and I created a deck or a series of decks, eight decks, uh, each covering different aspects of characters, uh, names, traits, personalities, quirks, uh, secrets, goals, um, and three others that I've forgotten by now. Uh, <laughs> and that product actually did really good. It was my first foray into printed products, distribution, getting all that. Um, and that actually went pretty well, um, and especially learning the Kickstarter, how that beast works. Um, after that, I kickstarted my second project, which was the Baby Bestiary. And that 
was an interesting discovery. Um, it came across of a discussion about displacer beasts and how they were aberrations, not magical beasts. And so instead of being an aberration, you know, like Cthulhu-esque, it was, you know, how cute a magical beast and how fearful an aberration was. So I was like, oh, or displacer kittens, how adorable would that be? And so I found the artist of a lot of the Wizards products, which was Conceptopolis, the artist company, and I got them to do three pieces. I went to Kickstarter, and lo and behold, I have a a brand, I guess, of baby bestiary products that I have to keep producing. You actually had three different, I'm sorry, four different uh, Kickstarter projects in the baby bestiary, didn't you? Yes, uh, two calendars, or three calendars. Uh, technically, it was Baby Vestry Volume 1, Volume 2, and, yeah, calendars. And then now uh, Atlas Animalia, it's kind of Baby Vestry. It is Baby Vestry, essentially, in terms of the theme and style it's going for. And, I don't know, I might have to think of another brand to encapsulate that in, in terms of, like, <laughs> systemless monster books that are awesome. But, yeah, and that kind of just grew from there. Um, I did another offshoot project that's still being worked on, which is Embers of the Forgotten Kingdom, which is my foray into setting design. And it's a Dark Souls-inspired tabletop setting, essentially. Um, Also systemless to see if it's actually possible to do. And that's in in development currently. And uh, Sorry, I'm saying and a lot. I'm catching myself. Okay, so so help me (laughs) out here because... There's a phrase here that I don't quite understand, and that's a systemless game. What does that mean? So it's not a game at all. Uh, I'm not producing a game. It's a product that's not beholden to Dungeons & Dragons Pathfinder. Uh, It's a book that can be used in any game but doesn't contain any rules. So, like, Dungeons & Dragons is considered a D20 game. Um, Other Other games function by other systems, and so I refer to them as systemless as they're not governed by a particular game rule set. They're completely art lore books, essentially. But the book itself allows itself to be wedged into whatever RPG or some RPGs where it can work. Yes. So the idea is, yeah, it's inspirational enough that you could pick it up and run with it if you're a veteran enough GM that, like, oh, I know how to do Rust Monsters. Let me just, you know... Give me the inspiration and I'll go from there. And I can whittle something up to fit my party's level and fit my, you know, fit the need of the encounter. So what else does Metal Weave Games do? Um, currently, let me go back to my mission statement. Uh, let's <laughs> see. Uh, essentially, what I want to do is create inspirational content. Um and so I've been trying to distance myself from creating system-specific books, and that's kind of an active decision I've been making. And I want to go back into making inspirational content because they're from the baby bestiary. There's a market for something that can work everywhere. So I'm not applying for just Dungeons and Dragons audience. I'm not just applying to Pathfinder audience. Not just Cipher audience. I'm going for everybody. Because the content works for everybody. It is timeless. It is systemless. And so it can work no matter where you are, when you are, in the curve of gaming, as long as you're in fantasy, per se. So in in looking at the way you've got things set up, 
Metal Weave has a creative team. They have a, a series of uh, artists. And then they have something called a review board. Yes, those are people who read and edit. They mostly the people who are just um, reviewing. It's more like my editing team, essentially, or people who I've used edit to edit, uh, edit and review products, and say like, oh, and to give feedback on. Okay, so they sit and look at what you think is close to a finished product and go, well, you could do this a little differently, or this doesn't make sense, or I don't understand how this works. Correct. So how how long has Metalweave been in, uh, intact? Uh, it essentially, start it's it started with the baby bestiary. That's when it became something. Uh, from there, and that was three years ago, or here, uh, twenty fourteen is when I started publishing, and then the baby bestiary, I believe, was in twenty fifteen. So you've come a long way in three years. Yes, I mean eight eight different published uh, projects in Kickstarter. Well, seven. And, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I count the ones that get pulled or put aside as because you have to work just as hard on those. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so joining you on this project is Sarah Dallinger. Sarah, how did you get involved with Metal Weave? Um, so I made a demo page so um, basically, I had a stint where I was um, I, I had really injured my elbow, and I couldn't draw for two years. And coming out of rehab for my elbow, I was kind of like, what do I want to go with my artistic career? Because I had worked in meta, uh, medical and travel and um, even video games. And I hadn't drawn for two years, so I was like, what am I going to do? So I've always liked Dungeons and Dragons and those creatures and those monsters. And I was like, you know, if I got to kind of start over again, I'm going to start over like this. So I made a demo page with a bunch of blaze and um, I've always been fascinated by science and biology. And um, I also do scientific illustration. I love anatomy, studying muscles and um, bones and skeletons and stuff like that. So I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I just made this demo page of the anatomy of a boule and um, what it would look like if it was like in a swamp or on an island so it had to get smaller or in the Arctic. And I painted that up and posted it on the Dungeons & Dragons 5th uh, Edition group on Facebook. And I didn't really think anything of it. I just posted it and then went about my day. And then I came back and there was like a thousand likes and a ton of shares and all sorts of people. And um, that's how we met. So let's talk a little bit uh, about your background, Sarah. You got your degree uh, in electronic imaging at <laughs> UMass. Yeah. That was... what, is, what is what is a degree in electronic imaging? It sounds like, you know, you, you're you're running an x-ray machine. Sorry. But... I know. I know. It's the worst. It's the worst name ever. So <laughs> I graduated in 2006. And back then, that was like kind of the first year that like ZBrush existed, I think, or that was 2005, mm. maybe. So they were trying to start a program that was kind of like, okay, so maybe it's a little bit of graphic design with a little bit of 3D and a little bit of 2D animation and 3D animation, and we don't know what to do, so we're going to be electronic imaging. And I was in college, and I was going to be a graphic designer, and then I saw the um, electronic imaging presentation, you know, and they had all, like, the 
they had 3D monsters and 2D animations and stuff like that. And I was like, sign me up. That's what I do. So my base is very broad. Um, I can do a lot of things. Like I can make movies, animations, all, you know, illustrations, all sorts of stuff. So I'm like a jack of many trades, I guess, with that one. It, it's kind of funny because when I, you know, when, when I got the information on you and I looked at your website, I'm thinking, okay, so we're going to see monsters and, and all kinds of, and then I'm looking at it and I'm going, Video game illustrations, creature illustrations, scientific illustrations. Uh, how, where did you start? You started with scientific illustrations? No, I, um, so I started with video games, actually. Um, I graduated from college and knew I wanted to make video games, and I didn't have. Uh, I, I didn't have the skills because it was such a broad base uh, degree that I wasn't good enough to get a job. So I went back to night school and got um, a certificate in 3D modeling and animation. And that's kind of where the monsters really started to take shape. I, I'd always liked monsters. Like as a kid, I drew monsters like every night. And I was that kid in junior high that would like go home and draw like dragons and stuff. Um, and um so that's basically how it started. And then after I got graduated from night class, I got a job at this place called Imagine Engine. And that was the like little video game studio. And the scientific illustration is actually a pretty recent thing. That was kind of post my injury when I was trying to reinvent myself. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to try and make the jump for this. And then because I love anatomy so much and I'm a huge fan of Tara Whitlatch, um, and I've taken her courses and, and whatnot. She's very big into if a monster is believable, it has to have good real anatomy. So if you're going to make um, a dragon, then you'd better understand the anatomy of crocodiles and cats and bats. And so I was like, yes, this totally, I, I love this. Because as a little kid, if I saw a dragon that wasn't, like, didn't make sense anatomically, it, it like, instinctually bothered me, even though I couldn't get it. I just, like, I couldn't explain that when you're 10 years old but when i was like oh my god they're kind of hand in hand like if you draw scientific illustration you can draw creatures that are even better than people who can't draw like you know who don't have the scientific knowledge so but I, I, i'm looking at some of that stuff and your uh wolf musculature one there is just freaking amazing <laughs> <laughs> oh thank you um and so you took your video game experience, you took your experience in knowing how anatomy works and is supposed to work, and then began to work into monsters. Exactly. Yep. And I took um, a human anatomy class, a really intense one, and it's awesome. It's um, Scott Eaton's online, uh, online anatomy class for artists, and it's for humans, but it's so in-depth. It's like almost a medical course. And once you know anatomy, like once you complete that course, jumping from the human anatomy to the animal anatomy is really easy. There's so many similarities. And, and then like that just one thing led to another. When... Our booker met you guys, and I think it was in uh, either at Vermont Comic Con or one of those northern ones. I'm not even sure where he, oh, he yeah. met up. Kids Con in Nashville, New Hampshire. Oh, Kids Con. Yep. Um, what were you there to promote? The Kickstarter? 
Do you have books? Do you sell illustrations as well? Um, I do sell illustrations um, because that's my current profession is I'm an um, independent freelance illustrator. Um, but um, my friend, um, which is – her name is um, Sarah, and she does Saki's plush and stuff and Senshi stock online. She had a table up there and invited me to come along to promote the Kickstarter. And it was kind of just like a impromptu sort of thing. And um, when I got there, I saw that a couple tables weren't claimed. So I just was like, you know, can I, can I just, I had, I had a few promotional things with me and I asked if I could throw them up on a table and they said, yes. <laughs> How do people respond when they see this kind of stuff? You know, what kind of it, response do you get? At the KidsCon, it was amazing because this happened within 30 seconds of each other. There was a girl who was probably junior high age, I would say, and she just saw the table display from about 10 feet away and, like, jumped over the table. And she's like, oh, these monsters, these are so great. You know, I love these monsters. And she's, like, got her nose an inch away from them, and um, I'm letting her hold them and stuff. And she's like, you're making a book. I can't believe you're making a book. It made me feel so good. And then... A minute later, this elderly man who had a cane, like, kind of walks really slowly up to the table. And when he gets there, same sort of reaction, just a little slower. Nice. monsters. I can't wait, you know, and he's an inch away from him and all that stuff. And it was just like, I was like, oh, my God. I got, like, a 13-year-old girl and this elderly man with a cane with the same reaction to my monsters. And I was like, that is just what I'm here to do. Like, I really want people to see these and love them and like, like, yeah, I'm totally going to use them. So that, that's what the reaction that I've been getting consistently with the book. And I'm so happy for about it. That's actually really, really cool. It's great to get that level of immediacy and, and feedback that way. Yeah, it was, it was just really great. It made me it, it, like, I was smiling all day. <laughs> so what other projects are you doing right now? Right now, this is my my main my main thing. Like um, I'm doing a couple like you know scientific illustrations on the side, um, hopefully to get licensed. Like uh, I just got uh, I just adopted a greyhound, and I'm going to be doing a big kind of full on like all the muscles, all the bones and stuff like that of him. So that's kind of my next project. And my other project is I'm illustrating a book that I wrote. It's called Seen and Unseen, and I'm about two-thirds of the way done. I have seven more illustrations to finish it, and uh, it's an 80-page illustrated novel. I started writing it in 2015, and I will be wrapping it up uh, this year. So very, very cool. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, that, was, that one was great. And um, one of the writers for the Atlas Animalia was the editor for Seen and Unseen. So I'm excited about that, too. So, Andreas, right now you're at 85% uh, as we're taping, and we've got about two weeks left to go. I believe this Kickstarter closes on July 8th. Uh, what kind of shape is the book in now? Is it ready to go? I mean, so how I've done a lot of my projects, because they're so art-heavy, it's really – it works really like a Kickstarter. Like, we don't have all the text lined up, all the art lined up. We really – like, I don't have that budget because um, this is a – Metal Weave Games is a part-time job for me. I do this when I get home and, gotcha. sometimes, and sometimes when I'm at work. 
I don't talk about that though. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, a lot of it is. So a lot of it is front loaded. So I try to get as much preview as possible in the design and the direction of where I want the book to go and how it's going to happen, and then expand on that naturally. And then we bring it to Kickstarter and say, you know, here's the book I want to do. Here's what it's going to look like. Here are the creatures, you know, we're going to do that are lit that we're I'm planning on doing or I'm planning on having people write about and then go for, you know, do the advertising and go for the funding and create a reasonable campaign. Uh, and what's new on the horizon for you? Because at this point, at, at three-quarter funding with two and a half weeks left to go, you're in good shape. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, I'm, yeah, I hate to curse it by doing that, but, no, you're in good shape. This is probably so been, on, oh. Go ahead. Yeah, so this is actually one of the first Kickstarters that, like, didn't fund in the first week that I'm not worried about. <laughs> Because like a, maybe yeah exactly because it was a usually if you don't fund in the first week it's like you know shoot now I have to really work hard at it and this one I didn't like just from the vibes that we got from the community and stuff like that and the support things have been going up really nicely and consistently. Um, so so what's new with Metal Weave Games once this Kickstarter? What happens once this Kickstarter is funded? I get people to work. Um, <laughs> actually, yeah. So what happens then is um, I get together the artists, or I get together, well, Sarah, um, I get together with the writing team and Sarah and kind of plan out all the Beast and the Beast variants that we're going to do. Um, I'll probably draft up a, well, I already sort of do have a mock page template figured out with, you know, the word counts for each beast and or for each page template. So each so how I did the baby bestiary is that I made it a template saying, you know, 300 words for introduction including this and this, um, 200 words about um, rearing or like egg egg care and then 500 words about um, actually training and rearing pet to like juvenile. And that was sort of how the baby bestiary was structured. This is like way off the top of my head. Um so don't point that for accuracy. Uh, gotcha. And then, so for this, so for this book, I do something similar, saying you know, introduction, first beast, second beast, legends, lore, each with word counts assigned to it. I get the writers and what find out what beasts they want to do, and then assign them, you know, rank based on their rankings of what beasts they want to do. So everyone kind of want, does what they want to do, and then we'll collect all that. Um, Sarah can start on the writing then now that we have the beasts or Sarah can start on the art now that we have the beasts planned out uh, the writers are cramming, cranking away and then as art and writing comes in I can start putting them into layout and then getting it seen by an editor and then I take care of all the graphical management I guess like in terms of just making the cover the interior um, just designing it from a I guess a layout perspective and then I just handle the printing and fulfillment um, through the partners I've developed um, from my earlier Kickstarters. So, Sarah, here's, I guess, the weird question. Here it comes. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. <clears throat> you are the artist for this book. The artist for this book. Yes, I am. So, 
you get the name of something and then you decide how it's going. What kind of structure do you get in creating them? Um, I, you know, a lot of times, a lot of times I'll kind of get the, the name and then immediately I'm, I'm thinking about the natural world and biology and, you know, like if, like, like let's say, um, we'll, we'll do the phase cats. Um, so the phase cats, we want to have, um, an Arctic one. And I was like, okay, well, you know, you're thinking Arctic, you have to think polar bear, you have to think big, big creatures lose heat. Uh, slower so of course it has to be a bruiser and then i was like well you know if we're thinking that way then maybe i'm thinking saber-toothed cat because you know the caveman ice age sort of stuff like that and then with the other phase cat we want like a quick kind of dry grasslands one so of course i'm thinking cheetah and you know and then it kind of goes it, it goes like that so it's um the function of the animal always dictates its form and then when you have a creature, you just have to kind of think, well, what in real life is sort of like that? And and then you marry the ideas together. Yeah, and it's always good to have Sarah in these conversations as well in terms of planning. Like, I know for the trees, we were trying to plan around, like, what trees to pick for the tree folk. And, like, what would be interesting and diverse. No, And we're also pulling um, a bit from the baby bestiaries already, too. Because um like like in the so you you'll see some correlation like willows were mentioned and so we've done willows as well so you know it's kind of like a whole family of books. I mean honestly, I get owl bear. I understand that one. <laughs> I get blink dog. Rust monster, not a clue. Like where it comes from? Yeah. Where, where does it come from? What does it look like? What does it do? So is that conceptual or just like, you know, where did the blink, or sorry, where did the rust monster come in D&D kind of thing? No, I mean, from a conceptual standpoint, you know, Sarah, you've got a name, rust monster. Oh. <laughs> oh, well, that's a D&D monster. That, like, okay. that, that's where that one got started from. So that was originally a plastic toy that Gary Gygax got. Yep. Um, and, and that's how Rust Monster started. Yep. Um, so I had a, I had a basic idea. They're already been done in D&D in like the traditional form. So I had a basic idea to base the variants on. Yeah. And, okay. and I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, gonna... I'm clueless in this, you know, but. <laughs> yeah. Like how dependent are you on prior art as far as, because a lot of these things are, are pretty set as far as far you know the D and D bestiary and the Pathfinder stuff. You, how how much do you use prior art to to make decisions? I always look at um, third edition to fifth edition, and um, basically what I do is I will look at those images and try and absorb what are like the most telltale or like iconic parts of that animal. And then I don't look at them. And then I draw my own. Because I got kind of, like, you know, when you're playing a game, like, you want the Rust Monster to feel like a Rust Monster. You don't want it to be, like, you know, like, completely like a dog. You know, you don't want it to be completely off in left field. So um, I do try and make sure that when you look at one of the variants, you can be like, oh, yeah, that's a Rust Monster variant. It's like a weird beetle thing, and it's chewing on, you know, uh, 
and steal or something like that. But yeah, I definitely look at the prior stuff because I do want it to feel like it fits in, like it could fit in those worlds. It boggles my imagination. But then again, I'm not part of that gaming world. So to me, you know, and this happened to me at work when I was kind of going through some of the images and somebody kind of leaned over my monitor and went, that's really cool. And I said, what is it? And she just started (laughs) rattling off for like five minutes. And I said, okay, I still don't have a clue, but thank you. At least it makes sense. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. The, the one thing that I can say about the illustrations is that they are absolutely marvelous and just incredibly beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I really hope that they make people happy. That's my biggest thing. I want them to make people like playing games. So, Well, so. right now you've got 440 people who are going, yeah, I like this. And you should have more uh, in, in the next two weeks. Uh, actually, you've gotten a couple since we started this recording. So that's always a good thing. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I can't thank you guys enough for uh, coming on the show and and talking about this and giving giving me a chance to actually be stupid about something and not feel stupid about it because uh, it's just, you know, in the end, I may not understand the concept of the gaming, but I understand incredibly good art that makes anatomical sense and also makes sense within the concept of the gaming community. So, you know, hats off, guys. Really, really nice job on this. Thank you so much. Um, Is there any other place that you're going to be in the next couple of weeks uh, promoting this? Uh, Physically, for me, no. Um, I I exist only on the Internet. Ah. You're not an actual person. I got you. (laughs) Gen Con is where I appear. (laughs) And Sarah, are you going to be at any conventions in the coming months? No, just that New Hampshire one that passed. So I'm I'm an online person right now. Cool. Well, listen, thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Kriana. Why? Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it's Sarah Dellinger and Andreas Walters uh, from Metal Weave Games and the Kickstarter for Atlas Animalia. We said even close. Yeah, that was close. Yeah, you got it. Thank you. Oh, no, thank, thank you, you guys so much. Kriana, is it time for news? Well, I guess it is time for news then. Uh, anybody want to go anywhere with news? Like the beach? Uh, yeah, we could. It is the it, first it, day of summer as we're recording this. Yeah, it is. And it was hotter than hell today, too. And you know what's coming at the end of summer? What's, what's coming at the end of summer? Star, Star Trek Discovery. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> <A> segue! <laughs> It's true. There is a release date. We have a date that will be pushed back. <laughs> so, yes, it absolutely will. Get attached to the to date the date September twenty fourth. That's when we will not see Star Trek Discovery. I love this. I love this quote that says 
uh, tries to explain why it's been such a long time's coming. Um, one of the showrunners said, "World building is hard." Love. <laughs> That, that sounds so much like an elected official uh, recently said, I didn't realize this job was so hard. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's interesting. Like, you know, we've all descended into third grade excuses, um, but it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see what actually comes of it. We've seen a bunch of teasers and, and even a trailer. And, you know, there's the weird paywall thing, but it is Star Trek. It, it is going to be something like Star Trek. So. Some a Star Trek like substance. Just just to get away from the glut of media that is Star Wars, I am going to be excited. Star Wars and Marvel comics. I'm just I'm excited to get away from it and see something different. Well, different yet somehow we've seen variants of it for thirty years. But well, it's yeah, different some, from Star Wars. Yeah, no, I, I understand. It's yeah. been, I think it's been, ten, has it been 10 years since Star Trek? Um, Enterprise? Enterprise? I think it. I think oh, it's yeah, been yeah. almost 10 years. No, and, it's less than that. It, no, no, it's definitely not less than that. Star Trek Enterprise was oh, canceled no. when, when Sci-Fi Saturday Night first started in radio. So, yeah, that's been on for a while. That's been off for a while because we started in radio like 10 or 11 years ago on that wonderful Clear Channel place. But, yeah. And something that definitely wasn't canceled is a series of unfortunate events because season two adds Nathan Fillion and Tony Hale uh, joining the cast. Still haven't watched that one, but I've heard really good things. season one yet? I have not. I've been waiting to binge it this summer. It's worth Kriana the binge. I, Absolutely. Yeah, Kriana and I watched the first few episodes and then realized we couldn't binge it. It's too... It, like, no, I just don't I like really, it. It's funny. Not really. But it's also, like the books, it is funny, but depressing. It yeah. gets very depressing. It It jerks you around so much that it's not something you can binge. That's some, that's a lot like the handmaid's tale. We've been watching our way through that. Haven't finished it yet, but it's, it's one of those that it's so, it makes me so angry. Difficult. I it's can't, it's I difficult. Can't watch it. yeah. I can't watch I, it. I really have to take it in weekly doses. And sometimes I have to take it in 15 minute segments because it's just, well, especially this week's episode. Uh, well, I haven't I haven't seen that yet. So I'm, okay, I'm, well, we're a few episodes behind because we've been interspersing with Doctor Who and American Gods. It's like uh, the, I, I have to be emotionally ready for American Gods before I watch American Gods. Well, you have to be really emotional, emotionally be ready to deal with Handmaid's Tale. Oh my True. God! Oh my God! And like I said, this week's episode was just. You know, when I thought it couldn't get any more vicious, I was wrong. And there was stuff that was in the book and stuff that wasn't in the book. And it was kind of, yeah, it's, it's, I can't tell you how many times within the span of that one hour, I literally walk out of the room for a couple of minutes. Uh, But it's, it's compelling. And it's, it's a dystopian rendition that is, uh, 
<laughs> dangerously real in a lot of respects. Well, luckily, and- a dystopia that is not dangerously real is Westworld. <laughs> and that also gets season two. We, yeah, it is also getting so season two. It, and, it's probably not till 2018 at this point. Yeah, but you know what? I can let it wait because I got so into that. It was such a good show. Oh, it what? It's it's the kind of show where um, I watch them individually, and you know how you run a push through the 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 opening credits and stuff after like two or three episodes. I didn't. Because the opening credits kind of get you set for what's going to happen. And it was like I was really able to get my mindset into play. And it's kind of the same thing that's happened with Twin Peaks. Have you been watching that at all? Wait, no, no, no. I had a really good segue. Out of of Westworld, though. Okay, so Westworld, Gunslinger. They've just reported that the Gunslinger TV series is going to be a continuation in the same universe, not a um, not an adaptation of the books. Wait, so this is the dark? Is this the Dark Tower? Yes. Sorry, I call it the Gunslinger because he's the best character. Right. I understand. I just think of it as his book, but it's not. It's Dark Tower. Okay. okay. I, I read the first two books, and then I uh, was not interested anymore. So I just I don't, I don't like Stephen King's narrative style. That's interesting. Um, I really always found Stephen King to be an acquired taste. Want to hear something funny? Speaking Absolutely. Stephen King, it's a completely personal story. It has nothing to do with the news. Okay. Uh, a fellow librarian friend of mine, not a co-worker, but a fellow librarian, had a patron come in a few days ago and say, you know, I really like Stephen King's old stuff. You know, before his car accident, before he got hooked on all those painkillers. Wow. For those of you who don't know why that's funny... Stephen King was on a lot more drugs before his car accident <laughs> than after. His car accident what is what made him sober. If you look at some of the Bachman stuff uh, that he wrote prior to the the accident, I believe uh, it was a lot stranger. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you never know what people are gonna. Say. There's, there's nothing more strange, though, than Twin Peaks. So, uh, Except I, Stranger Things, which is strange. Well, stranger things, things isn't that strange. But well, only Twin because Peaks is, in the- Twin Peaks is legitimately strange. And, you know, I watched the first season of Twin Peaks about six years ago for the first time. And um, season one was weird. I didn't get too far into season two. And so I'm really curious with Dome, because I know that Dome is a big fan. Um, oh. What do you think of the new season? 
See, and most of my Stranger Things knowledge comes from the psych episode where they most of my Twin Peaks knowledge comes from the psych episode where they go to Twin Peaks. <laughs> I am so enamored uh, with, with Twin Peaks at this point for a couple of reasons. It's got the same flavor and texture that the original series had uh, and the the scattered narrative that they're using to put it together. Like a fine tapioca pudding. (laughs) It's great apple pie. Um, The scattered narrative that they're using to tell the story, which bounces you literally all the hell over the place. And just when you think you've totally lost it, they find a way to hook you back in. The writing has been phenomenal. I love the music. I love uh, uh, the camera work. Uh, If you're not a fan... I get it, Um, uh, but if you enjoyed the first series at all, the first two seasons, where you enjoyed Fire Walk With Me, then this is just, it's like everybody took a breath and just said, okay. In fact, the interesting thing is the very last line in season two is the character looking straight into the camera and saying, I'll see you in 25 years. And that's the first graphic, that's the first thing they open with in episode one of season three, 25 years later. I thought that was just absolutely incredibly wonderful. Awesome. I'm going to admit, yeah, I already admitted my knowledge. I don't don't really get it. Um, Yep. And and I I mean, I'm... I don't. I'm not going to apologize for that. But no, you shouldn't. Have, like, no, absolutely. The, apologize for it. It's it's one of those things that I I don't I don't get it. I mean, I I understand some of the things that he was doing in in Twin Peaks, but a lot of it was. Uh, I, I don't get it, but I'm not mad. I don't get it. I'm not mad. I don't get it either. And I'm glad that he's doing more things. That's cool. Awesome. I'm glad people are happy. How's that? I'm also glad that Family Guy did a tribute to Adam West because, of course, they should. He was most of what was making that show good for a really long time. Definitely, absolutely was. Uh, and I'm, we're going to post a link to, to the YouTube eight-minute uh, video of the what they refer to as Adam West's Best of Quahog Mayor Adam West, and it's <laughs> Which, just like that's just exactly Adam West's personality right there. Adam West, AdamWest.com, goodies. AdamWest.com, <laughs> goodies for you. And he sang it to us to boot. Uh, we haven't played it yet on the show since he passed because we've been too sad. I know. Mm-hmm. I know. And, and it was, uh, we'll play it someday. Yep. We'll play it. We'll, we'll find, find a way to work it into a show at, at some point. But, you know, it's, it's kind of the iconic, uh, yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he took the time to reinvent himself a couple of different times. 
and his family guy was stuff was just phenomenal and wonderful and he was his own character for an awfully long time yeah he he and he and Bill Shatner did very similar things wherein they took themselves and made them like their own person into a character in order to maintain their relevance and I think that was very smart well and I think that, that that's something that a lot of aging actors do um, you know there's there's numerous examples and one of the things that was true about Adam West and I think that this was also true of his generation his generation of actors TV actors the initial like TV actors um, they embraced fandom and that is something that you even today especially today you see a lot of actors you know who don't appreciate or don't care about fans the same way that Adam West did and you can't see me but I'm nodding and, and I think that that's I I understand like when you go to a con and it costs 80 to 150 dollars to get in line to sit in line for two hours to get a picture and a, and a handshake with someone who's on game of Thrones or, you know, walking dead. That's, that's not fandom. I mean, to be fair, Adam West did that too. Well, yeah, but you know what? If you go back to the very first time we met Adam West and that was at the same show that we met Doug Jones that was almost seven or eight years ago. The world's we literally, human being. Yeah, I know. Not, not Adam West. Awesome Doug as Jones. Adam West is, he's not Doug Jones. Let's just say that. <laughs> we literally walked up to Adam West at a booth with his manager, and you guys started talking to him. I started talking to the manager to see if we can get an interview. And while I'm talking to the manager, you guys were getting the interview. Well, and it was, we, were, we were getting serenaded about AdamWest.com, but <laughs> worth it. But Every moment was worth it. Absolutely it was. And he was great fun. And, you know, in seven, eight years ago, that's how conventions were. There were some actors where you had to stand in line and, and, and pay for the privilege of getting a picture taken with them or an autograph. And then there were people like, Adam West, that you could just kind of walk up to and go, hey, you're Adam West. Cool. <laughs> you know, and, and it was, he, he was fun, and he was always engaging. And, you know, uh, I, the world is a little emptier because he's not around anymore. He was just and, a fun guy. And I will give him his one often untouted but pretty awesome thing that he did, which is he made anyone realize that they, too, could don a Lycra suit and be a superhero (laughs) because if Adam West can be Batman, anyone can be Batman. Val Kilmer could be Batman, yeah. And if yep. who would have thought Adam that? West can have high arch eyebrows, anyone can have <laughs> high arch eyebrows. Yep. Because 
Hey, Kriana, do you have any idea who's going to be on the show in the next couple of weeks? I do not. Oh, well. Next week, L.L. Source comes in to discuss Buried in Blue Clay, his new book. And on the 15th of July, Neil Cole from the Museum of Classic Science Fiction in London joins us live from London. And that's going to be a really, really interesting time. Well, uh, he joins us live. He joins us live. And when the listeners hear it, it's going to be pre-recorded. By the time they get it. Yeah. yeah. And I'm really looking forward to that because uh, I've been looking at him hand-building this, this museum and the kind of stuff that's in there. It's really damn Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast of Bradcon, with these Comic-Con books and booths, and ComicArtHouse.com. Please visit ComicArtHouse for some of the best deals original art from dozens of favorite artists. If you have a free moment, take a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family on Amazon, and on Barnes. You can find the link right up the Orchestra music provided by Bob Watts. Find his creations at Bob Watts on And our outro music, which you're listening to right now, by Lawrence Fry. Check out their groups LawrenceFry.com. I want to thank our guest, Andreas Walters, who's the president of the Sarah Dunker, the artist for Atlas and Malia. Then I when we start. I want to thank uh, the gang for joining us tonight from the Peabody Time Tunnel, the sweetheart of the Sandborg Ghana and Woman of Words on Grand. Thank you so much, the peace. That's what she said. And back from the Thunder Stove, thanks for the fish. Java, always great when you're around. Appreciate it. So long. This is Dome saying, Terry and Jeannie, shared pennies lessened, shared joys increased. Thus do we all refute entropy. Good night, everybody. crashing. I know. Yeah. <laughs>